You're about to listen to a message from Every Nation Church Midrand, the place where people come to be changed and discipled to transform society. The name of Jesus indeed changes everything, saints. There is no name like it. They didn't have silver and gold, but they had the name. And healing came upon somebody. Wow. Okay, we're going to get straight into it. We're going to be speaking, looking at Luke 15 this morning. Um, let me just pray. Yeah, Father, we just thank you for this time, this morning, your presence, your name, and your Holy Spirit, Lord. We thank you that you're going to touch our lives, that you're going to shift something today, oh God. We are expectant. We are expectant. And we're not going to live the same, oh God. We place a demand, oh Father, and say, heaven touch us. Yeah, we say as it is in heaven, we want to see it here on earth, oh God. We want to see it here on earth in the name of Jesus. Not in the by and by, not in the afterlife. We want to see it here, Lord, in the name of Jesus. So we are open, Father. We declare that our hearts are a good ground for your word. That the word we receive will bring forth fruit in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to be bring the word to you this morning. Um, yeah. Um, it's a nerve-wracking experience. Okay, it's a nerve-wracking experience. The reason it's nerve-wracking um, is because you guys get too good of a word. So you know the standards are too high. <laughs> you know, so you have to, you know... Uh, ascend to that sort of level. But let's get straight into it. Luke 15, verse 1 and 2. It says, Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribe complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. What an interesting thing. It makes you wonder what happened. The tax collectors and the sinners draw near, the Pharisees, the religious people complain. Yeah, yeah. So what on earth happened here? You know, what is going on? And just to give you a bit of context, the tax collectors were the lowest class of human beings in the entire Jewish system. So when a tax collector drew near to a rabbi, this was an impossible occurrence. Because how the rabbinical order worked is that you would be identified early on in life, like Jesus was actually a candidate. You are identified 12 years old. You can ask the right questions. They're like, there's something in this boy. You need to keep studying. You need to push further. Then when you grow older, what you will do is that you will look for a rabbi to follow. And you will go and say, okay, uh, Pharisee, can I follow you? They'll say, eh, no. Okay? You'll go to, you know, Sadducees, can I follow you? They say, no. You keep looking, you keep looking. But a tax collector would have never qualified because he would have never showed any signs of this reality. That is why he's in a profession. A fisherman would have never qualified. Because he would have, if he had showed early signs, he wouldn't have gone fishing. He would have gone and tried to follow a rabbi. So you can see the kind of people that we are talking about when we say tax collectors, right? Yeah. It's the lowest class that the Jewish people considered. They were hated. They were the people who were working with the oppressive government to give it wealth. Yeah. So imagine that, right? Now, the sinners, on the other hand, I think this word is strange to say tax collectors and sinners. 
who on earth are the sinners, right? <laughs> who wasn't a sinner, you know? Who on earth are the sinners? Now, at least you guys have gone through Leviticus, so you know about cleanness and uncleanness and so forth, right? So the sinners were those that were unclean. Everyone that was unclean was classified as a sinner. So if you came and you had leprosy, you were a sinner. If you came, you had dropsy, you were a sinner. If you came, you were a eunuch, you were a sinner. If you had any bodily imperfection that the you know, Levitical order would have spoken about, you were a sinner. But the other side of it is that you openly lived immorally. So some of the sinners were sinners because they are halots. Some of the sinners were sinners because they are adulterous. The woman caught in adultery was a sinner because she was openly, although her husband, uh, you know, the other, anyway, okay, yeah, <laughs> you know. So that's what they were talking about when they said the tax collectors and the sinners. So you can imagine the repulsion of these guys that how dare a tax collector and a sinner follow a rabbi. Such a thing has never been seen in Israel. It's not allowed. Now, the Pharisees, on the other hand, and the scribes were those who would have been identified from an early stage that these guys show potential to actually be rabbis in future, and they're being groomed and they're being trained and so forth, right? So that's the difference between these two camps of, of people. But it's interesting that the complaint was not whether Jesus has healed on a Sabbath, whether Jesus has walked on water. It was this man receives sinners. My friends, that is still good news today. Jesus receives sinners. Amen. We have heard that we receive Jesus, right? We know, okay, I must receive Jesus to be saved, but Jesus must receive you. Jesus receives sinners. That's a massive difference between the Pharisees and Jesus. Jesus was the only rabbi of his time who knew how to deal with sinners. He was the only rabbi. Remember, when a rabbi called a student, accepted a student, it's because he was saying, I believe you can emulate my way of life and become a rabbi just like me. The ambition of a rabbi was to reproduce another like him. So you wouldn't take someone that you think can't emulate you. So when Jesus takes the sinner, he is saying, I believe you can actually walk in the miracles that you've seen me do. He's saying, I believe that you can actually connect with the Father the same way you've seen me connect. He's saying, I believe. So it's radically different when we actually come to Jesus and we are saved. Jesus already believes we'll get to the end. Jesus already believes we can do it. He already believes we can walk out holiness. He's not confused about this matter. We might at times think, I can't, this is too heavy, this feels so and so. But Jesus is absolutely crystal clear. You can do it. You can do it. Jesus still receives sinners even today. But of course, the question is, what happened? What did Jesus say to actually result in this sort of interaction? And for that, we're going to need to go to Luke 14. Okay, so we won't read the whole. We'll just read a few. But just to give you sort of a picture of what's happening here is that Jesus was invited to a party of one of the rulers of the Pharisees, right? Jesus was invited to both parties. He was invited to parties of sinners and parties of Pharisees, okay? So, yeah, that's a, a good life model there. Be invited in both sides, okay? But it shows the heart of Jesus that Jesus wouldn't have accepted the invite of the Pharisee if he had no intention to also reach the Pharisees. Because sometimes we actually look at the Pharisees and we just think, ah, you know, this is impossible, right? It's those guys again. It's all about everyone else except the Pharisees. But Jesus wanted to reach the Pharisees, at the same time wanted to reach the sinner and the tax collector. Now, this tells us that there are people that are religious already that Jesus has a heart to reach. There are people that are sitting in church already that Jesus has a heart to reach. 
they are self-righteous. In fact, they get repulsed to say, but what kind of church is focusing on outreach for this long? Okay? But Jesus has an ambition to reach that person. Okay. Now, what happened is that Jesus is invited to a party. He gets to this party in typical Jesus fashion and style with his pose, as they say, right? With his entourage. They get to the party, and the first thing he sees is somebody with dropsy. I can't even imagine what dropsy is, but it just feels like something is dropping, you know? But dropsy, okay? When gravity is against you fully, okay? That's dropsy, okay? <laughs> you know? So he gets invited, and this guy has dropsy, and they're watching him to see, what is Jesus going to do about this guy with dropsy? And Jesus then turns to them and says, okay, guys, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And no one says anything. And then he actually goes ahead and gives an example and says, but guys, if you guys actually had an animal and that animal fell in the pit and it was Sabbath, you're going to get it. Why? Because it hits your pocket. You know? Because sometimes we are religious about everything else, right? Except, <laughs> you know, it's very interesting. But then he goes ahead and, you know, fixes the gravity situation of the guy, and he no longer has dropsy, and he actually heals him. Now, no one says a word about that, but there's an anger, obviously, which is there. He starts enjoying the rest of the party. You know, Jesus is there enjoying the party. I'm not sure if he was dancing or not. I don't know, right? But he's enjoying the rest of the party, and he starts walking through the party, and he starts saying, okay, guys, I've seen you, you know, how you throw parties and where you like to see it and so forth. He starts giving them some party etiquette, right? This is how you actually do it when you enter a party. He says, you see, when you enter a party, don't go to the best seats. Yeah. No, 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 no. They might remove you there. <laughs> go to the worst seat and the invite will come and fetch you and say, friend, why aren't you at the best seat? Yeah. Then you're going to have honor, right? You're going to be standing there from the back and saying, okay, <laughs> you know, okay, 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 right? So, but if you are in the front and they take you away, then it's embarrassing. It's dishonoring. And then they're like, wow, okay, this is a good message. We've never heard a rabbi who actually talks how to party. This is the first rabbi who teaches us how to party. And then he goes to the next story and says, look, I, I've looked at your guest list of guys who attended your party, but you guys are making a mistake. You see, you assume that you must invite people who can invite you to the next one. No, that's not how I throw parties. Invite those that can't invite you back. You know, invite those that can't repay you. They can't do anything about it. All they can do is attend and feel blessed. He says, that's the kind of people, right? And this guy like, wow, what kind of rabbi, what kind of parties are we going to go to here? Right? And then he says, actually, there was actually this man, right, who threw a mega party, the party of all parties. He calls it a feast. This party was unlike any other party you've ever attended before. But what he did is he had a standard guest list and said, okay, I'm going to invite so-and-so, I'm going to invite so-and-so, I'm going to invite so-and-so. The invites go out, you know, save the date. They reply to the safer date and say, Ish, I actually just got married. You know, I, I, let me, I need to see to this. Can I please be excused? And he's like, okay, fine. Next person, I actually just bought a field. You know, I'm in business now. You know how it is, you know. Can I be excused? He says, okay, fine. You know, everyone brings excuse after excuse after excuse. Then the party thrower says, actually, my house will not be empty. This party is not going to be, you know, a, 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 a small party. It's going to be a mega party. So go to the street. Invite everyone, right? These guys go to the streets and they invite everyone. And they're like, Master, we've invited everyone, but there's still room. And he says, okay, go invite more. Go, did you go to the streets, right? Did you actually go to the homeless? Invite them as well. Now, this was the party to end all parties. There had never been a party like this ever before. It wasn't uncommon for rabbis to actually throw parties, for the Pharisees to throw parties. 
And all the parties existed for one reason and one reason only, for increasing my honor and my stature in the community. It's so that you come in and say, wow, your party, I have never been to a party like this. You know how to do this thing, right? And then you invite, and then I must outdo you, right? You didn't have a, you know, a water statue in the middle. I have a water statue. Then I get more honor, and I get more honor. Now, when they hear Jesus, they're thinking, wow, this guy has a different method on throwing parties. I, I now know how to actually get honor when I enter the party. I now know how to have the biggest party. In fact, it's connecting to, to, uh, to it something bigger, which I don't even understand. Now, look at their reaction in verse 25 of Luke 14. He says, now great multitudes went with him. Isn't that interesting? He tells them party etiquette and the multitudes decide we're going to follow. The multitudes who would have been in attendance in these parties are those with rabbinical ambitions. These are guys who came there to find a rabbi and now they want to follow Jesus. They are thinking Jesus is their guy. Why? Because he told them, or at least they interpreted this as saying, there's a way that you can actually throw the best party ever. There's a way that you can actually have honor when you enter any party, right? And therefore they actually replied. But then we know something happened to cause this breakaway. Now, when they replied, he actually turned to them and said, if anyone comes up to me and does not hate his mother, and f or his mother, father, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Whew. That's a tough uh, party, you know, criteria now, okay? I'm curious if Jesus was an evangelist because evangelists don't like turning away people, right? And this guy is turning away people. <laughs> you know, Jesus is turning away people. But he actually says that, and this is actually a strange thing. Why would Jesus say this? And what does it actually mean? Because we've already read, you guys are masters of the Ten Commandments. You know what they are, backwards, forwards. You know how many times they are mentioned and so forth, right? Because you guys have, you know, looked at the Torah to a large extent. Now, in the commandments, we are told to honor mother and father. Yeah. How can we at the same time hate them and honor them? This might cause a bit of a contradiction, right? right. I want to honor you, but I hate you. You know, it might be a challenging thing to actually execute. Yeah. So what is Jesus actually talking about here? You know, what he's saying is that our love for him, our love for God must actually be so extravagant when it's actually compared to anything else, that thing looks like hate. And the nearest thing we can relate to when it comes to love is love for our parents, is love for our spouses, love for our brothers and sisters. But he's saying that love, as much as it is, as glorious as it is, you know, some people say, ah, I just had a baby. I, I don't even know if I can have a second one because I don't know if I can, I have that much love. You know, I love this one so much. Yeah. It's like I'm kept on love now that I have a baby, right? Or you get married, you know, you know I'm just so in love. You just see roses everywhere, you know, yeah. and so forth. You just can't imagine loving anything more. But my friends, Jesus is saying there's a higher love. And that's the love that Jesus actually calls us to. A love which makes every other love look like hate. I don't even understand what that looks like. I know I love my parents. How is it that I can love Jesus so much that this looks like hate? You see, there are some key things we need to take seriously here. If we actually, you know, don't manage to actually love anything, if there's anything that we love equally or more than or just under that's the thing that's going to cause us to stumble. The point of sin in our lives, the point of being unable to follow Jesus fully in our lives 
is we love something more than Jesus. We love something at the same level of Jesus. The level at which we love that thing is not extravagant enough. It's not extravagant, right? We must love Jesus extravagantly compared to how we love anything else. But why did he choose this sort of categories? I found that curious. And I think if we actually think about it and say, from mother and father, what do you get? From mother and father, you actually get your way of life. You actually get your identity. Peter talks about the empty way of life, which is handed down from our fathers. So we get a way of life from our mothers and from our fathers. But if our, the way of life we get from them is contrary to Jesus, who are you going to choose? Sometimes our parents' way of life demand us that we go to the grave and do some stuff, some weird stuff. But if we don't love Jesus more, we'll keep going for honor. We'll keep going for honor. We'll keep going for honor. But all of that is not getting us closer to Jesus. It's taking us further away. We need to love Jesus more than we love mother and father. We need to. The way of life of Jesus is infinitely superior to any other way of life, and that's the way of life we're actually called to. We're not called to actually be Christians who are trying to express the way of life of their parents, of their traditions, of their ways. When you are saved, you are saved out of a culture. You are saved out of a family. You are saved out. That's what salvation is. And now when you actually go back into that culture, it's to transform it. It's to change it. It's to remove those things which are contrary to Jesus. It's not to continue. It's not. Some of us, we actually buy property, we buy houses, and because of the way of our parents, some weird stuff must be done for those things. But we don't say anything. Why? Because we love them more. We honor them more. We hold them high, higher than we hold up Jesus. It's just that it doesn't look like that because we tick the church box. We tick the prayer box. We tick, we tick uh, okay, I, I have done the Bible reading box. But loving Jesus actually looks like hating those things. And notice, he didn't even say, you know, I hate their ways. I'm just expanding. He actually says mother and father, direct. The other category, if you think about it, wife and children, what do they bring to our lives? They actually bring meaning, right? You find a man is undisciplined, right? He's unruly, he's irresponsible, he gets married, transformation, right? He is so responsible, he's so disciplined, he's always on time, you don't even believe it. You're like, what, what happened? You can't you had this thing in you, okay? I actually had a friend of mine, so this guy, so we used to do Bible study together, and he was the worst person to do Bible study with, because I would wait for him for 30 minutes, and I would see him update his Facebook status. <laughs> like, uh-huh. like, what were you doing, right? And it was always so frustrating to me. But when he got married, this guy would arrive before me at things. All of a sudden, there was a transformation. Huh? Marriage, eh? But sometimes we, we, we can assume that the meaning of life is actually family. We can assume that this is what life is about, and we make that mistake all the time. You know? And you find people now, they say, oh, I can't participate in this because of romance. Romance reason one. Romance reason two. Roman, it's Valentine's Day. I can't come to prayer. It's Valentine's Day. You know? It's the day of romance. Right? No, it's like that, right? You go on holiday, you go on holiday for a month with your spouse, and it's just romance. You don't even read the word. You're like, no, baby, let's leave the Bible behind. Because what we'll be doing there, you know? The Bible does not enter. You know? You, huh? But it's because we are loving those things more than Jesus. 
We don't realize that Jesus is the meaning of life. He is the scope and meaning and purpose of life. My life is hidden in Christ. That's what Colossians teaches us. We are hidden in, in Christ. And when Christ, who is my life, appears, right? Christ is my life. He's not a part of my life. He's not a thing I've added to me. He's actually my life. He is the meaning, the purpose, the scope, the everything of my life. Apart from him, there is no meaning to life. We are just going about. We are all just driving our nice cars, staying in our nice houses, journeying towards death. Apart from Christ. Because there is no meaning from Christ. There is no meaning of life apart from Jesus. We are all just grooming our kids and, until we die. But everything is journeying to one end. And that end is death. But when Jesus comes into the picture, it's no longer journeying there. It continues further with him on the other side. In fact, it doesn't even end in heaven. It comes back here on earth again, right? So this is a completely different way of actually thinking about it. Interesting enough, even to the Corinthians church, this matter was so important. It was so important that they wrote letters to, to him and for God to actually ask about, you know, some key things about the spiritual experiences they were having and so forth. They went straight and says, uh, you know, there are marriage issues, you know. Can you help us with marriage issues? There, there are these issues, there are that issues. Can you help us with those issues, right? Paul does not answer their question for six chapters. For six chapters. Only in the seventh chapter, he says, now concerning the things you wrote to me about, to show you that life is not about those things. Life is actually about Jesus. He spent six chapters, six chapters, clarifying to them that this thing is about Jesus. He died, he rose again. He changes your life today, not in heaven, today. He changes and touches your life today. Don't make your life about that. They were busy curious, okay, how do I divorce? <laughs> okay, they were curious, right? That was the key question they were asking. But Paul did not actually make it about that. He made it bigger, and that's because life is about bigger than that. So we have to be careful to not find meaning and derive all of our meaning from family. Find meaning and derive all our meaning from spouses, right? And from children. Like, okay, this is the only seed I'm going to have. This is the continuation. No. When you are in the gospel, when you are in the kingdom, the continuation of you is beyond physical. You must be a disciple maker. That's the continuation of you. That's the reproduction. We are not limited to physical reproduction. We go beyond that. You know, you can be a single person here and have a hundred children because we are not limited to physical reproduction. Okay. And the last thing he tells us to hate is siblings, right? He says siblings. Now, siblings often play a support structure, especially when you're not a firstborn. When you're a secondborn, I think this is harder because you're always depending, right? You've always. In fact, when you're not a firstborn, sometimes that firstborn is even the standard of your life. Oh, they got three A's, I must get four, right? That's how it is. They got into uh, just an accounting qualification. I must get into the higher accounting uh, qualification. Do you get what I mean? It's always this competition between, oh, I'm married to an accountant, so I can say accounting stuff, it's fine, okay? Okay, but there's always this competition, there's always this thing where we peg our life up with our siblings, you know? Oh, they're this far, okay, I must be this far. They are this far, I must be that far. Our siblings ought not be the standard of life. We are not aiming to be as good as big brother. In fact, we are aiming to be as good as another big brother. And that big brother is Jesus. That's a completely different way of actually living. It's not about being like the sibling. It's actually 
transcending and say, I want to be like the ultimate sibling, which is Jesus Christ. But when we actually love sibling more, we'll be stuck there. You know, we'll be stuck there at that level, at their standard, at what they do, right? And another thing as well is that siblings offer us help. They offer us support. You know, sometimes when our siblings are just so blessed, we never even cry out to God and say, God, help me. Why? Because you, before you've even dialed the whole number, Big Brother has responded. You know, he's sorted out the rent, he's sorted out the food, he's sorted out the entire month. You never know what it is to call to God. That's the challenge sometimes when we love these things more. That is the challenge is that they often become idols in our lives. And in most of the cases, they are already idols in our lives. And that's a scary position to actually live our lives in. Okay? Now, he then adds in 27, he says, and whoever, and I think this is the key, he says, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. Do you notice that in both cases, he says he cannot be my disciple. He's saying it's actually impossible to be a disciple of Jesus Christ when you love anything more. It's impossible. God does not have mixed-race kids. So one race, Christian. One race, Jesus. There is no, I can be partially loving the world and partially, no, one race, one race, one love. That's how it works. But I believe this is the key. It's a very odd scripture. It's a very odd thing for Jesus to have said. He says, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. This is weird. What does this even mean? Okay. It could mean many things. There are many theologians which give different views about this, right? But this is one thing I am sure about. The day a person carried his cross is the day they died. This is the thing I am sure about. The day you carry your cross is not the day you actually enter that party. It's not the day you go into that other thing. It's the day you actually die. And that's the trick. That's the trick to be able to love Jesus extravagantly more than anything else, is to actually carry your cross, go to his feet, and die. And then Jesus will resurrect you anew. And that's the person that can love Jesus more. It's not this person. You're not going to be able to be the same person with the same unchanged nature to actually love him more. It's the person who rises from the death. The day the person carries their cross is the day they actually die. So Jesus actually calls his disciples to die. To say, come, die at my feet. I give you new life. And with that new life, you can actually walk right and live right. If you have never died at the feet of Jesus Christ, it is physically, emotionally, intellectually, any other lead that's out there, okay? Impossible for you to actually love anything in this way. It is actually impossible for you to say, I love Jesus more than my parents. I love Jesus more than my child. I love Jesus more than my brother. It's literally impossible. But when you are raised again, that's the person that can do it. Okay. But I need to go quite fast. Okay, then he continues and he talks about a, a few things there. You can read it in your own time. Um, I'll have to jump. He says in verse 33, he says, So likewise, whoever does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. So he continues this theme, he's this theme right? He says, if you don't forsake everything that you actually have, you can't be my disciple. So Jesus is touching their family. 
Jesus is touching their husbands and wives. Jesus is touching the children. He's touching the, children, the, the, the siblings. And now he's touching even what they have. He said, if you don't forsake everything that you actually have, you can't be my, can't be my disciple. Now I was thinking about this and I was like, wow, Jesus, this is hard, eh? Like this is so hard to actually follow you. But I realized the key is to die at his feet and to be raised again. For that new person, it's not as hard because they are filled of the Spirit and they are following in accordance with the Holy Spirit, right? Now, when I was actually thinking about that, I was like, wow, okay, forsake. Okay, so I must forsake everything, forsake everything. Okay, it feels like I'm actually losing something. Doesn't it feel that way? It feels like I'm losing something. I am cutting off something. This thing is no longer in my life. You know, life now doesn't feel as good as when I had that thing, right? I mean, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, okay, good teacher, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, and Jesus says, oh, why, why are you calling me good? There's only one that's good, that's God, right? Um, and then he continues and says, okay, have you kept Moses' commandments? And the guy says, ah, since I was like 12, you know, I've been doing that thing. I've been killing it. And he says, okay, fine. Um, one thing you still lack, he said to him, is that give up everything you have. Go give up your wealth, then come after me, and then you'll have eternal life. And the guy went away sad. Why? Because he actually had a lot of resources. In the book of Mark, it actually tells us that Jesus, before he said it, Jesus loved him. So the act of love of Christ was for him to forsake. Isn't that a weird love? A love that says give up stuff? What kind of love is this? Normally love says get stuff, take stuff, right? But what's astonishing there is the response of the disciples. So if we quickly look at Mark 10, okay? Mark 10, 28, Peter's response, okay? Peter says, but I've left everything. What's going to actually happen to me, okay? See, we have left all and followed you. What's actually going to happen to us? Let's go to, to the next one. So Jesus answered and said to him, Assuredly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, brother or sister or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospel's sake, who shall not receive a hundredfold in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands, and persecutions in the age to come, uh, in, the, in the age to come, eternal life. Okay? So, but that's fine, up to until verse 30. When I read this, that's when it hit me. It hit me that forsake is a cover-up word. Forsake is a cover-up word. Forsake is a cover-up word for blessing. That's what it is. It's hiding the fact that you give up one and you get a hundred. There's no bank which is going to give you that. There's no mutual fund that's going to give you that. There are no actual models that make that happen. You give up one and you get a hundred. Forsake is actually a cover-up word. And when we actually don't forsake, what we don't know is that we are like this little wheat, right? Holding on to the tail. Oh, no, I don't want to fall. I don't want to fall. Not knowing that when you hit the ground, you die, but something else comes up. Okay, which is bigger and more glorious than what you're actually holding on to. And I think that's sometimes where we struggle to get it. We struggle to actually give up things for Jesus because we don't realize it's all a cover. It's camouflage. It's a military strategy. He's not revealing his entire hand. It's only once you do it that he reveals the hand and says, actually, I was setting you up to increase you, but I knew I couldn't increase you with this. You don't understand. It's a cover-up word. And when you don't, you, okay. When you don't, that's the challenge. When you don't forsake, you remain as is. You don't get more. That's the thing. You actually don't get more. It's only when you forsake. 
right? It's only when you forsake. When you look at the parable of the talent, everyone else forsook and said, I'm going to go do something with this talent. The one said, I'm not forsaking. I'm going to hide it. I'm going to make sure nothing actually touches it. Okay? The master was not more pleased with that guy. He came back and said, ah, why didn't you actually forsake it to the banks? They would have actually given me more. Forsaking is a cover-up word. Okay? And I want to close with this example. Okay? Genesis, the, the father of faith. Forsake is a cover-up word. It's just that God knows. If you just said, okay, it's a blessing, right? You know, it's a hundred houses. Perhaps you would have forsook for the sake of, Right? But when you don't know that it's a cover-up word, you're forsaking for the sake of Christ and Christ alone. And when you actually forsake for that reason alone, Christ alone is actually sufficient. It's not Christ plus, but it's actually just Christ alone because you're like, I forsook everything for Jesus and it just so happened he just starts blessing me. He just starts increasing me. I don't even know what I've done to deserve this, but he just keeps increasing me. And sometimes we don't enter the level of fruitfulness, the acceleration we should be operating out because we're still holding on. We're still holding on. We don't want to forsake. But if you forsake, something changes. Okay? Genesis 12, we know this story. In verse 1, uh, the Lord actually speaks to Abraham to call him out. He says, get out of your country. Okay? Note what he's saying, get out of. Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and will curse those who curse you. And in you all the families on the earth shall be blessed. What did God tell him to do? Get out of your country, your family. Now imagine this scenario, right? You meet a brother who comes to church now for the first time and says, look, the Lord told me to come here. And you're like, oh, where are you coming from? Okay, I'm coming from hypothetical country Uganda, okay? I'm coming from Uganda. And says, wow, what did the Lord say to you? The Lord said, I must leave my country. You're like, tick, this guy's obedient. And you're like, okay, what else did he say? He said, I must leave my family. And then you're like, oh, who are this with you? Oh, no, this is my father, um, you know, this is my... Would you say that person has obeyed? You'd say something is still missing, right? Okay, put up Acts 7-4. It's clear, get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to the land I will show you. Okay? Then he came to the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haram. And from there, when what? His father was dead. He moved to the land which you now dwell. Abraham could not enter the promised land until he forsook. He had not forsaken family. Abraham actually obeyed God and took along with him his family and said, guys, the Lord has spoken to me. He said, I must leave, but you must come with me. Okay? You must come with me. He said, I must leave you, but, you know, he actually did not enter the promised land. You see, when we actually don't forsake, what happens is that we end up in transition land. We end up in the middle. We end up in lukewarm land, right? We end up in that place where we are salt, which has lost its saltiness. We can't be used for the soil. We can't be used for the steak. We are just there. 
The middle place is not the place for anyone to actually be. That's the place where there is no blessing. That's the place of just stationary standing. The only grace of God which came to this man's life was for his father to die. That was the grace of God. Otherwise, he would not actually have entered. He would not. So obedience, when we are actually giving up, it's a cover-up. It's a cover-up for blessing. And when we are holding on, it's also a cover-up for curse. It's also a cover-up. We are holding on and like, okay, Dad, you know, are you okay? You know, I just want to check on your health today. What's going on? You don't know that you are in the place of just transition. There's no blessing there. Okay. Let's look at what happened with his nephew, Lot, right? We know in verse 4 that Lot said, I'm going with you. And Abram said, okay, come as well. Uh, and I'm assuming that Lot would have had that ambition because he saw the father also saying, I'm going. Then he said, oh, okay, it's a family thing. Let me go along, okay? And he wants to go along. Now, look what happens here with Lot. Um, actually, in 12.7, it says that and the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your descendants I will give the land. And there he will build an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain, to the mount east of Bethel and pitched his tent um, and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. Then he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed going still toward the south. Okay, So he's on this land and God tells him for the first time, look, this land, you know what, it's going to be yours, right? And it continues on the journey. Let's jump to 13. In chapter 13, we know that both Lot and Abraham become very rich. They become so rich that the country can't contain them. Imagine that kind of wealth, eh? That kind of blessing. When you forsake, there are some things that come, eh? You, know, you, you become so wealthy, okay? You're like, as a church, guys, no, man. There's too much here. We, you, you know, we just like, this is not enough. We always need bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger because the blessing of God is just so extravagant. Like, can you imagine being blessed to the extent that you're like, my brother, our businesses are competing too much now. We've taken over the entire country. We need, you need to choose another country. I'll stay, you know, I'll go to another one. You know, that's another level of blessing. But that's the level of blessing that these guys were operating at financially, okay? That the land could not actually hold them. Verse 14 of 13, it says, is it up there? And the Lord said to Ab Abraham, after Lord had what? After Lord had separated from him, the Lord starts speaking. Okay? He says, lift up your eyes now. Look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land which you see I will give to you and your descendants forever, and I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Do you see that? He was still with Lot, just chilling, like, oh, you know, we're just getting more cattle, you know, we're just getting more cash. Life is just going on. But when he actually separated from Lot, then the Lord started to speak to him at a higher level than he's ever done before. You see, when we are actually not forsaking everything to follow Jesus, there is a level of relationship with him we can't enter. There is a level of revelation from him we can't even receive. 
because we are still holding on to things of this earth. We are still holding on to family. We still want to go the ways of the family. And you know the ways of the family will end you in sin. Okay, we still want to go, okay, it's just about the meaning of life, it's just my wife, it's just my children, that's all it's about, okay? If, if they call a prayer, they better check my child's schedule first, right? If they actually, they better make sure it doesn't follow Valentine's Day. Why do you guys actually have uh, your fast in Feb even, you know? You know that's the month where it's happening, okay? This thing is upsetting me, I'm, you know? That thing actually prevents you whatever you love more than Jesus. Whatever you love at the same level of Jesus, limits how what you can enter into forsaking is just a cover word of god saying i'm calling you higher of god saying i'm removing the limits i am taking you to a place you have never been to be uh, been to before i'm gonna bless you higher i'm gonna bless you more than you've ever seen more than you've even imagined if windows could contain there is nothing that contained the kind of blessing i'm releasing from heaven into your life all because you actually forsook you thought you were living behind one thing you didn't know you were entering into a hundred you thought it was just about me leaving my family you didn't know you're gonna have more family on this side than ever before you just thought oh it's just a house i'm gonna leave it for the sake of the kingdom you didn't know there was a mansion which is waiting for you you just thought okay it's just me forsaking some time with my family you didn't know that god was taking you higher that god was taking you from glory to glory so forsaking my friends forsaking my friends is just a cover word never be afraid to actually forsake okay if we actually connect all of this back to the story that we're looking at in luke why was this good news to one group and bad news to another? Why was it good news? To one group, they knew. They knew there was stuff in their lives which made them unworthy to even step near a rabbi, let alone God. It made them unworthy to even step near a temple. When you ask those guys where the temple is, they might have had to check Google Maps because they were unworthy to even go there. That's how unworthy these guys are. They were literally the worst of the worst. But can I tell you something? There isn't a sin which is small enough to not make you the worst apart from Jesus Christ. There is no single sin which is small enough to not make you like the tax collector, to not make you like the sinner of the day who is unwelcomed in the presence of God. There is no small sin. You just think, ah, oh, my sin was just lies. I just lie, you know. It's big enough to exclude you from the plans of God from the commonwealth of Israel. There is no single sin. And sometimes when we sit and we think, ah, I'm fine, it's just the other person. It's because we're in Pharisee land. Yeah. We are in self-righteous land, self-exaltation land, self-honor land, a religion, a religion which couldn't even bless people that needed it. That's where we are. And that is why it was good news to these tax collectors and to these Pharisees, because they knew they were not only just forsaking mother and father and sister and brother, wife and child, they knew they were also forsaking their sins. They knew when they carried their cross, they were going to die at the feet of Jesus and they were going to rise again as a different person, with a different position, with a different status, with a different thinking, with a different meaning. They were no longer the same. That is why it was good news to them. It was good news because it meant a fresh start. When you actually come to Jesus, you're no longer the same. That analogy of it's a prison break, it's like you were in prison and then Jesus came and broke you out of prison and took you out is wrong. No, you were in prison, Jesus came, broke you out, you died. Okay? Jesus took you, just, you just died. And a different resurrected person came out. A person which can actually walk with God, which can actually stand with God. 
It's a completely different thing. This is why the Bible says we are new creatures in Christ. We are not the same person. This is why we know no man after the flesh any longer because you are not the same person you were. Okay? Let him who stole still know more. Why? So that he can bless. He didn't even know. The thief didn't know he had the ability to bless people in the community, but he had to forsake stealing. And that's when the blessing of being able to actually do something good for, for the community came. Would you mind if we just stand and start praying at this point in time? You know, I don't know where you are. I don't know what this message means to you and what it's actually saying to you. But I want to encourage you with a simple thing. If you know or God is highlighting to you in this time an area you haven't forsook, an area you are still holding on to, saying this area is mine, this area will hold on to, I would encourage you to say, saints, let's repent. You know, let's repent. Let's actually forsake that area. Let's say no longer will I be defined by that area, but I will be defined by Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. I will no longer be defined by the family. I won't get significance because I come from the right family. I get significance because I'm from God. I get significance because I'm born again in him. I am a child in the house. My status is different. Who I am is different. Everything has changed. You know. So saints, I just want us to pray, just where you are, just to say, Lord, areas I'm still holding on to, I want to surrender those. I want to realize that this is a cover-up for blessing and walk into those blessings that you have for me. Let's just pray like that and trust the Lord. Amen. This ministry has come to you live from Every Nation Midrand. For other life-changing messages and more information, log on to www.everynationmidrand.org.